Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. We are thrilled to have you with us. I'm Ed Bacon, the interim rector, and I have one of my very, very, very best trusted friends with whom to have a conversation. I knew that today needed to be about understanding what's been going on in Israel-Palestine with all of the horrible violence and all the death. And I know of no one who could do a better job of leading us through this than my friend Dan Sokach. Daniel Sokach uh, and I have been friends for more than a quarter of a century now, and he is my soul friend. Daniel Sokach is also an interspiritual friend of mine. He is also a colleague in making justice. He is an international global citizen. He has a deep love for Israel. He also has a deep love for justice. He is consumed with the prophetic energies of Hebrew scriptures, and I, am, and I trust him with my life. So my friends, I am so happy to introduce to you Daniel Sokatch. Daniel, welcome. Thanks, Ed. It's always great to be with you uh, and wonderful to be with your community here on a day that uh, is very difficult. But as you said, we've just heard that there, there is a ceasefire. So that's a bit of bright news in an otherwise pretty dark period over in Israel-Palestine. Yeah, this is, this is a, a conversation we have to have at the right time. So Daniel, um, first let's talk about what you do in the world. You are the executive director of New Israel Fund. Tell us what NIF is, please, sir. I will. Uh, I'll tell you that, but I'll just tell your congregants also that uh, that that Ed and I go back before 9/11, when when I was just a a, a fledgling social justice activist, and 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 Ed, uh, you know, he, he was one of the great teachers. Uh, in, in addition to being my my dear friend and 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 brother, he's one of my great teachers, and so uh, I'm, I'm envious of all of you to get to learn with Ed every week. Uh, so uh, as Ed said, I'm the CEO of the New Israel Fund, and the New Israel Fund is uh, the leading organization working for democracy and equality for all Israelis and for everyone living under Israeli control. And uh, we were described uh, some years ago by the leading Israeli daily newspaper, Haaretz, uh, in the following way. It wrote, uh, virtually no single social-minded organization in Israel exists today that doesn't owe that existence in some way to the New Israel Fund. And we're very wow. proud of that description. Wow. Uh, and then you fast forward a few years and just a couple of years ago, the leading daily newspaper here in the United States, the New York Times described NIF uh, the following way. NIF uh, is the leading organization defending democracy in Israel. And I would say that the difference between those two descriptions speaks volumes about the changes in Israel over the last 12 years, far more than it does about any change in the mission of the New Israel Fund. So very briefly, NIF was founded in 1979 by a group of uh, progressive American Jews who, uh, who felt that the ways of being engaged with Israel at that time uh, as supporters of Israel, lovers of Israel, uh, weren't sufficient. They didn't want to just write a check and send it off to some international organization. They wanted to work in partnership with real live Israelis and they had a theory of change, as we say in our business. They believed that Israel in 1979 was missing a vital component if it were to continue to emerge as a liberal democracy, as its founding document, Israel's proclamation of independence, uh, demands that it be, right? And, and the ingredient that they felt it was missing was what we call uh, civil society. That is that, that rich ecosystem of organizations and activists who work for justice who represent the interests of marginalized and vulnerable communities, who stand for issues like civil rights, human rights, the environment, uh, who work for inclusion of marginalized citizens like LGBTQ people, and in the case of Israel, Arab citizens of Israel, or immigrants from places like Ethiopia and Russia. And it's hard to imagine, but back in 1979, there was no civil society in Israel, and so NIF set out to build it. And uh, we did that through three strategies uh, that we've used over the decades. First, we give grants to terrific organizations that do amazing work. The uh, 
The New York Times columnist Tom Friedman once told me that when he was despairing of the situation in Israel-Palestine, he always remembered the New Israel Fund because he said, quote, you do God's work, uh, wow. which, is, which is a great quote to share with, with you all. Um, the, the, so we give grants to these tremendous organizations that are working for justice, equality, and democracy. Number two, uh, we also have uh, an operating arm, which is called Shatil, which means, uh, which means seedling in Hebrew. And Shatil is the leading capacity builder to help these organizations figure out how to do everything from internal governance to writing grants to working in coalition to lobbying at the local or parliamentary level for better laws and safer situation for their constituents. And then finally, we have what we call special projects. And I'll just give you one example of the kinds of things that we do to bring Israel closer to that vision uh, that the founding uh, parents of NIF had. It's called the Law Fellows Program. Every year, we choose two up-and-coming civil rights attorneys in Israel. Usually, one is Jewish, one is, is an Arab citizen, a Palestinian citizen of Israel. We take them to Washington, D.C., where our partners at the American University's Law School, the Washington College of Law, uh, donate an LLM, a master's degree in, in, in law, um, in human rights law. And then we place them with a sister organization, which could be the ACLU or Lambda Legal Defense or the Sierra Club, any number of sort of progressive American civil society organizations where they serve, they volunteer for a year and learn with those organizations. When they go back to Israel, they commit themselves to doing two years of service usually in one of our grantee organizations. And <clears throat> over the course of the last 40 years, we finally retired this program last year it was a victim of its own success, and we, we got to declare victory and, and move on to the next project. Th they now constitute the civil rights bar, the graduates of this program, of the state of Israel, and virtually every Supreme Court case in Israel that has expanded the rights of Israelis, of marginalized people, that has frankly limited the actions of the Israeli army in the occupied territories, has come from a, suit, a lawsuit brought by one of those law fellows. From the, from the lawsuit that allowed women to be fighter pilots in the Israeli Air Force yeah, many years ago to the lawsuit that required the Israeli army to reroute the security barrier that it built between the West Bank and Israel so it didn't uh, essentially grab land from Palestinian farmers. So these are the kinds of things that NIF does. We have been, for most of our 42 years of existence, we were a benign progressive foundation, but over the last 12 years, coinciding with my tenure, but that's only coincidental, we've become a target for the ultra right-wing, ultra-nationalist community in Israel and its supporters abroad because we work for equality between Arab and Jewish citizens of Israel, because we, uh, we oppose the settlement enterprise and the occupation, arguing that it's not only bad for Palestinians, but it's eroding the moral and democratic fiber of the state of Israel. So this has put us on the front lines, but we have very prominent supporters like former Israeli uh, Prime Minister Ehud Barak and former American President uh, 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 Barack Obama. Well, uh, Daniel, I am going to insert here something that I really want. I'm sorry that I didn't mention in the introduction. And, and that is to establish for our viewing audience the fact that you and I not only are friends and colleagues in justice making, but when I talk about being interspiritual friends, you and I have worshiped together an awful lot. You and your wife and family <clears throat> rarely missed a Christmas Eve at my church in Pasadena. And you and I have spent many full Yom Kippur's days uh, going from shul to shul, um, listening to one another speak, and praying with one another. And I just simply wanted to state that as well, because that's part of the fabric of our relationship. The one thing you missed, Ed, in that description was, uh, it, not just Christmas, I rarely missed an Easter Sunday. I know. And, and for me, learning at All Saints Church in Pasadena, the difference in the feeling of, of, of those days was one of the most instructive and powerful lessons I've ever had. And I got to sit next to Hope, your wife, who yep. would whisper and explain to me and answer my questions. But those were very powerful, very powerful experiences. I'm so grateful for you. So now let's talk about what's been going on the last 10 days. So everybody, uh, when Daniel and I agreed to have this conversation, um, 
I asked him if he would walk us through what's been going on. So nobody's intelligence is going to, we, we're not insulting anybody's intelligence, but we're assuming that everybody is pretty confused about what's really been going on. So Daniel's going to walk us through. I'm going to interrupt him when we need to back up and we need to take a deep breath because of some inspiring thing he said or something like that. Um, so here we go. Daniel, take our hand, please. All right. Uh, but I'm going to begin in the classic uh, Jewish tradition of, of immediately not doing the thing that you asked me to do. <laughs> because I love it. <laughs> I can't walk you through the last 10 days unless I walk you through the last month. And I Very promise good. to be brief and pithy. And probably okay. I can't walk us through the last month unless we establish some basics about uh, the last century. But yeah, we, don't have, sense. we don't have time for that. So let me just start with a, with a premise that I think it's important that your congregants and other, other viewers understand. It's, it's my belief that in the words of the great Israeli novelist, uh, Amos Oz, the late great Amos Oz, and peace activist, that the justification for Zionism, which is just the national movement that believed in the 19th century that there should be a Jewish, that there needed to be a Jewish homeland uh, in, in the ancient homeland of, of what was then called Palestine, um, that he, Amos Oz said and wrote that the justification for Palestine, because of course, when those Jews started coming in the late 19th century to avoid the horrors of persecution in Europe, which would ultimately uh, result in the Holocaust in, in the 30s and 40s, when they started coming, there was already a population living in Palestine, and those were the indigenous uh, native Palestinian Arab population. There had always been some Jews living, living in Israel since the Romans kicked us out in 70 CE uh, and destroyed Jerusalem, but, but a small number. And in the 1880s, the Zionist movement began to grow that number. So why am I saying this? Because Amos Oz wrote that the, that the moral justification for Zionism and for the establishment of the state of Israel despite the fact that there were people living in that land, is the same as the drowning man who swims to a plank in the sea. Uh, when he and, he and he sees that there's already another guy on that plank. And, and the laws of nature and, 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 and the laws of, I would argue, humanity and, 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 and God uh, dictate that that drowning man has the right to climb onto that piece of driftwood, to hang on to it. He even has the right to shove the first guy over a little bit so that he can survive, but he doesn't have the right to shove the first guy into the ocean. He has to share the plank. They both have to share the plank. <clears throat> so I think it's important that we establish that that's where I'm coming from. I know that's where you come from, Ed. Uh, there are two sides <clears throat> to this conflict, excuse me, both are victims of each other, of themselves, of the world, and they're going to have to share. That's my starting premise. It's not a zero-sum game. Very, very important. Let's just stop right there. Powerful metaphor to hold on to. <coughs> and you tell me, because you're going to be leading us through this, is now an important time to introduce the fact that that creates two narratives, or is that something you're going to talk about later? Well, let's just say it. There are two narratives, right? That is to say, there is the Jewish story and there is the Palestinian story. And we would argue, and when I say we, I'm talking about Ed and, and you and me, right? right? And many people, we would argue that both of those are valid narratives in the same yes. way that the African-American narrative and the Native American narrative and the, the, the narrative of those of us who are white Americans and our different various narratives are all legitimate, true narratives. And one can't displace, as so often in history has been the case, the other, uh, and, 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 and we expect that we're gonna get to justice. If we pretend that what happened to the native population of our country didn't happen, if we bury their narrative, uh, then we're never gonna get to a better place. And the same with, of course, the situation with African-Americans, as we've seen over the last few years, um, as that has become more and more central to the consciousness of more and more Americans. Well, also in Israel, this is the case. And too often, each side has to try to deny the narrative of the other side, to erase the narrative. And here's yeah, where I'll yeah. say something that may be challenging for some of our folks to hear, of our friends to hear. <clears throat> there, there have been... Uh, so since 1948, but especially since 1967, and I'll explain or remind us why those dates are important in a moment. Right. 
the narrative of Jewish Israelis has been by far the more dominant and powerful narrative. And that's because uh, th that's who holds the power in Israel today. Um, <clears throat> so in the West, we're much more familiar with that story of the Israeli side of the story, in particular the Jewish Israeli side of the story, because 22% of the residents of the citizens of the state of Israel are not Jewish, they're Arabs. They are Palestinian citizens of Israel who happen to live on, uh, on the Israeli side of what we call the Green Line, which was the armistice line after the 1948 war that surrounded Israel's independence. Uh, that's a war that Israelis called the War of Independence, the salvation of the Jewish people, and it was that after the Holocaust. It was the salvation of the Jewish people, and Palestinians call it the Nakba, the catastrophe, the displacement and dispossession of the Palestinians, 700,000 of whom were either thrown out of Israel or fled what became Israel and became exiles in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Europe, in the United States, and it was the Nakba. That's also a true narrative. So we need to wrestle with this and hold both of those things in our hands at the same time and recognize that what for Jews was the great salvation after the disaster of the Holocaust, which itself was the culmination of hundreds of years of virulent anti-Semitic hatred and murder in Europe, this was salvation for the Jewish people, but that salvation was the catastrophe for the Palestinian people. So, <clears throat> so those two narratives are, are very important to keep in mind, as you say. Now, let's fast forward to about a month ago. About a month ago, uh, there were protests in a neighborhood of East Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah. That's an important name for us to remember. This is a, a, a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. And, and here, as I said, in 1948, during Israel's War of Independence slash the Palestinian Nakba, uh, Israel uh, and Jordan fought in Jerusalem. There was no Palestinian state at this time, right? And the Israelis and the Jordanians uh, stopped fighting, uh, and this armistice line was drawn between what is now the West Bank and, and Israel proper, and East and West Jerusalem. By the way, the armistice line was drawn uh, in, in near, near Gaza uh, between Egypt and, and, and Israel, and at the Sinai Desert between Egypt and Israel. So this, this is what we call the Green Line, that 1948-49 armistice line. And East Jerusalem, uh, a big Palestinian, the, the sort of the, the capital city of the Palestinian people, and today, the city the Palestinians claim as the capital of their the homeland that they wish to establish. Um, East Jerusalem, held by the Jordanians, was a Palestinian Arab city, Jordanian controlled, and West Jerusalem uh, was was an Israeli city, a, a largely right. Jewish city. But before 1948, and for the 60 or 70 years preceding it, Jews and Arabs lived in uh, all over the city of Jerusalem. Right? They 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 lived. There were Jews living in East Jerusalem and in what is now the West Bank, and there were Palestinians living in what is now West Jerusalem and Israel. But during that war, that 48-49 war, uh, there was what we would now call ethnic cleansing on both sides. And and I don't think we have time to get into the the hist history and morality of that. But let's just. Uh, established, let's stipulate, as I said, about 700,000 Palestinians who lived on the west side of the Green Line in what is now Israel were, were kicked out or fled over the line to the Green Line. About 10,000 Jews who lived in, east, in the old city of, east, uh, of Jerusalem, the Jewish quarter, and in parts of the West Bank and in the ancient cities of Hebron were kicked out or fled over the line west into what is now Israel. And then, in an almost uh, choreographed uh, dance of ethnic cleansing, about 700,000 Jews living in Arab and Middle Eastern countries were kicked out or fled their countries after the establishment of Israel uh, and came to Israel. So that is what happened. And of course, as we all know, that was just a small example of what was going on globally in the world during that period of time in the 40s, uh, the 30s and 40s, where there were massive population transfers between Israel and Pakistan and Bangladesh, or sorry, India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, between Turkey and Greece within Cyprus, with Germans from Czechoslovakia and Russians and Poles. So the world was seeing what we now call ethnic cleansing happening everywhere, and it happened in that corner too. And some of the Palestinians who were kicked out or fled West Jerusalem were settled by Jordanians in some houses that the Jordanians built in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. 
and exactly. there there they lived right this is 1949 we're talking about the Jordanians built these uh, homes now in 1967 during the six-day war Israel captures the West Bank and East Jerusalem it conquers them in the six-day war along with other territories held by Syria and Egypt and uh, and what Israel does next in Jerusalem is that it annexes the eastern part of the city, including what we call the Holy Basin, the area where uh, the old city of Jerusalem, its four quarters, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Armenian, and the uh, the Temple Mount, right? That is in Hebrew, Har Habayit, and in Arabic, Haram al-Sharif. This is the place where the Mosque of Al-Aqsa, the Golden Dome of the Rock, and the Western Wall all are together. And, you know, Ed, you've been there. And yep. you know, you know, sometimes we think about this geography and we imagine it to be like American geography, but Bethlehem is about five kilometers from the municipal border of Jerusalem now. And the municipal border of Jerusalem goes right up to the city of Ramallah in the West Bank. So yep. the Western Wall and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Western Wall, which was the retaining wall of Herod's Temple Plaza, is just underneath the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. So Israel captures it, it annexes it, uh, the world does not recognize that annexation. Interestingly, not even the U.S. under Donald Trump recognized the annexation. Even when he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, we didn't officially recognize that annexation. But Israel, let's be clear, is in control of all of Jerusalem now, right? Yeah. Um, now, what Israel did in the in the decades since 1967 is that they, they started moving Jewish citizens into the West Bank settlements and into new neighborhoods that were built in East Jerusalem and into the old neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. Now, I want to, again, be very clear in what I'm saying may be controversial, but under international law, that's a violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which prohibits an occupying power from moving its civilian population into territory it's captured. And folks, forgive me for being so wonkish here, but but Ed wanted us to really understand this, so we got to walk right. it through. Correct. Not, right. Again, not with the exception of the Trump administration. Every American administration since 1967, including both of the Bushes, uh, Reagan, and now the Biden administration, uh, sees those settlements as illegal, right under international law, and as obstacles to peace. Still, Israel continues to build the settlements, and today there are almost 700,000 Jewish-Israeli citizens living in the West Bank or East Jerusalem. Uh, I'm just realizing now on this talk with you how often the number 700,000 comes up in our story. Uh, rough numbers of the Palestinians who fled, the Jews who fled the Arab countries, and the, the Israeli Jews who've been moved into the settlements. So, so uh, one of the small areas that Jewish uh, right-wing ultra-nationalist settlers have been coveting is the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where six families of that original group were settled by the Jordanians in houses that were built for them, where they've lived for over 70 years now. Now, there is a claim in the Israeli court system that that property was owned in the 1880s by two Jewish trusts that were established to buy up land to settle Jews in Palestine. Uh, as part of the Zionist enterprise. Wow. Now, over the years, those trusts turned over their ownership stake, their claim to that land, to yeah. an ultra-right-wing Jewish settler organization. Wow. And, and, and some years ago, over a decade ago, that settler organization filed... Now, let's be clear, these are not like the, the descendants of the actual people who may or may not have lived in the 1880s, in right. that neighborhood when it was allegedly owned by these Jew these Jewish trusts. Right. But 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 th these guys filed in court, uh, in the Israeli court system, to evict six Palestinian families living in houses in Sheikh Jarrah, okay? So I explained all of that background to give you a sense of how this feels to Palestinians. It feels just like the latest uh, uh, iteration of, of, of Israel's plan to remove and reduce the Arab population of Jerusalem and increase the Jewish population. And indeed, in 2004, uh, the Israeli government released its master urban plan for Jerusalem, which, which, which stated that its objective was to maintain the Arab population of Jerusalem at about 30% of the city, but, but now it's about 40% of the city. So 
whether it's intentionally or coincidentally uh, happening, the move to evict the families from Sheikh Jarrah is in line with trying to keep the Arab population of Jerusalem lower and the Jewish population of East Jerusalem in particular higher. So this seems to Palestinians and many, by the way, Israelis who sympathize with them uh, to be a microcosm of the Palestinian struggle to not be dispossessed from their homeland, right? It was bad enough it happened in 48, then and again in 67, but now in 2021, it's happening again. So why did, so you're asking me right now, all of you at home, what the heck does this have to do with the last 10 days of Gaza with Hamas and the IDF shooting at each other? What I'm gonna tell you is, that court case was due to be heard at the High Court of Justice, Israel's Supreme Court, last two Mondays ago, wow. right? Uh, and, uh, and so Jerusalem began to seethe with anger at this, right? Palestinians and their supporters in Israel, by the way, saw this as a terrible injustice that was now reaching its denouement. And indeed, buses of Arab Israelis, not who are citizens of the state, the Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem, by and large, are not citizens. They're permanent residents, right? They didn't accept citizenship after 67, uh, and they can apply for it now, but very few do, right? So, and, very, and even fewer are granted that citizenship. But, but, but Arab Israelis from Nazareth and Umar Faham and cities all over Israel were busing in to join these protests, along with Jewish Israelis who opposed the plan to evict these people. And, uh, and, and as I said, Jerusalem began to see. So, so that's Roman numeral one. You want to now, butt in? Yeah. Yeah. Before we go beyond Roman numeral one. Yeah. Repeat the categories of energy coming here. We've got settler energy, yeah. which is yeah. ultra right wing. Okay. Correct. We also, and those Israelis, but we also have, or and we also have within Israel, an energy that wants to have could we say at this point a two-state solution or where both folks are on the plank? Yeah, definitely. I don't, you know, for, for a lot of liberal Israelis and Palestinians, I, you know, a lot of them don't really believe that a two-state solution is likely at this point. Right, um, okay. But but let's keep it like this. They want to see both sides on the plank. They want everyone Very to be on the plank together in whatever political arrangement um, assures equality for everybody, right? right? They don't want to lose the Jewish quality of the state. They don't want to lose the idea that Jews in danger have a homeland. Um, and, the, and the Palestinians who we're talking about, the liberals, they don't want to lose their Palestinian identity, but they are all committed to sharing the plank. And so that's some of now, the issues. Now on the Palestinian side, we also have two different energies. And please tell me, Daniel, correct me if I'm reducing things too simplistically, but it just seems like we've got this ultra right-wing energy in Israel, as well as let's coexist in yep. Israel. And then we've got the same kind of, or do we, let me put it this way, do we have comparable energies on the Palestinian side? We do, Ed, we absolutely do. And we're about to come see some of that, but there's a significant difference. And the difference, as I said earlier, is power. Right. I mean, the irony yeah. of our conversation is that the yeah. Jews are the example of powerlessness in yeah. Europe and they paid the horrible price for it. And the right. Zionists were right, actually, in their assessment. Right. That the only solution for Jews uh, was to get the hell out of Europe and go somewhere else. And and our countries united. I mean, my ancestors were lucky enough to be some of the Jews who were admitted to this country. But but during the rise of Nazism, the US and the UK and Australia and Canada and New Zealand, all of what one of my daughters, when she asked about this one said, all the good countries, why didn't the good countries take in Anne Frank and her family? My daughter right. asked, exactly. that was Noah, uh, your goddaughter. Uh, and, goddaughter. And, 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 and of course the answer was because they didn't actually open their doors to the Jews. The, the choice was run the British blockade to get into British controlled mandatory Palestine or die. Yeah, and, yeah. and and so and so that powerlessness that defined the Jewish experience in the diaspora was reversed. And I mean, I think this is a editorial opinion now, folks. Like one of the lessons is when anyone gets power, they are uh, they are liable to abuse it. Amen. And that's a lesson I learned from you, Ed. 
Uh, that is the issue. So, so not everybody, but some people, because they're right. frightened, because they're vulnerable. That's right. That's right. And, and, That's right. That's and right. so you are correct that on both sides, there are, let's call them the, the zero summers, the people who think this is a fight that their side has to win, and the people who say, no, no, there's room on the plank for all of us. But the difference is, is power. So that the, the fact that Israel holds the cards, most of the cards, right, um, means that that power imbalance gives far less agency to the Palestinians, and it means that the moderates on the Palestinian side are far weaker than the extremists who say, look, all we can do is be extreme. Now, it's important to remember, and you and I know this well, when, when we became friends in Israel, the moderates were in control. <laughs> You know, and uh, and the liberals even. And back in the 90s, Israel was was reaching its hand out to the Palestinians and to the world. And so that's important for us to remember now, too. Twelve years of Bibi Netanyahu's leadership in Israel have seen the rise of an extreme right wing uh, that is sometimes uh, akin to uh, the the most right wing sort of white, even white supremacist uh, right. aspects of folks who ruled recently in this country. Uh, um, again, I know this is my editorial opinion, but I would argue there was a simple, you know, the reason why Trump and Netanyahu and Viktor Orban in 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 uh, in Hungary and uh, and and you know even Erdogan in Turkey and and, and the leaders of Brazil and other in <clears throat> Poland they had a lot in common because they are not liberal, they are not fans of democracy for everybody, they're fans of democracy for the majority group. <clears throat> so so that exists everywhere and on the Palestinian side as well, but. But, but over the last 12 years, you know, Israel's had the power. And, and, the, and the best example I can give you of that <clears throat> is the law that, um, that is being challenged at the high court. And this is going to be something that's going to sound like I made it up. Um, and here's where I want everyone to remember, I love this place, right? I consider myself a liberal Zionist. But let's be honest about what's happening here. Israel passed a law. Uh, the final iteration of the law was in 1970, after the Six-Day War, after the conquest and and annexation of Jerusalem that said uh, Jewish Israelis could sue just like they're doing in Sheikh Jarrah to reclaim territory if they could prove that Jews owned it before 1948, right? But Arabs in Jerusalem, Arab Jerusalemites cannot sue for their territory back on the west side of the Green Line. Now this is really difficult for a lot of folks to hear. A lot of Jews, a lot of Christians who love and care about Israel, but we have to be honest. This is the law. The deputy mayor of Jerusalem said it best when, when, when she said in the press last week, <clears throat> yes, some would say it seems like that's an unfair application of the law, but this is a Jewish state. And of course, it will seem like sometimes we privilege our Jewish residents. So I, I, I appreciated her candor. Um, I find it morally reprehensible and strategically destructive to Israel, but at least she's being honest. She wasn't denying the fact that Israel has a law that works for Jews, who want to reclaim territory in East Jerusalem, but does not work for Palestinian Arabs who want to reclaim their territory, their homes in what is now West Jerusalem. All right, so that's at before, the heart. Yeah. All right, before we go to chapter two or yeah. Roman number two, let's put some names on these energies over in Palestine. Okay. Is Hamas the only representative of the real right wing um, retaliation oriented group? Or are there other partners in that? There are others, but for our purposes to keep it sort of as simple as we can, <coughs> let, let's, and, and, and again, and I want to caveat, it's not simple. There are, there are always, right, yes. exceptions and, and it's mixed up and it's, but by and large, during the Oslo Accords, uh, which were signed on the White House lawn by Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat in 1993, uh, as a result of the Oslo Accords, Israel and the PLO recognize each other. That's the Palestine Liberation Organization, which up until that point was the dominant uh, player in Palestinian politics and life, still is. Um, and, and in this, Israel and the rest of the world, including the United States, uh, recognized the PLO, which had been considered a terrorist organization that you don't talk to, as the sole legitimate representatives of the Palestinian people. And the PLO recognized the state of Israel and its right yeah. to exist, right? Okay, so yep. so that happened. So those were the kind of, so the Rabin, the Labor Party, Rabin administration, and right. the PLO of those days uh, were the kind of moderate players, right? I mean, Rabin had been a, the general who conquered the West Bank, and Arafat had been a terrorist, but they changed, they reformed. Um, 
Later, Arafat went back from that position and Rabin was assassinated by Jewish terrorists. But at that moment, in 1993, they were moderates. But as you are quite correctly uh, asking, in response to that moderation, the zero summers struck back. It was like the Star Wars, the empire struck back. And there in Israel, it was the extreme right wing of the settler camp that saw Rabin as an existential danger, correctly so, because he wanted ultimately the end game, make no mistake, the end game of Oslo was a two-state solution. And it looked until the assassination like it was gonna succeed. And they wanted to stop him, but also, the the right wing of the Israeli political spectrum, which was not as extreme as the settler right wing, but supported the settlers, they also wanted to stop him. And the leader, uh, the leading party of that opposition was the Likud party. And the leader of the Likud party in 1993 was a man called Benjamin Netanyahu. So, so even in those days, he was a rejectionist. He rejected <coughs> the Oslo peace process. He said, not yes, I want peace, but I don't want peace on those terms. And the settlers who were part of his base said, we don't want peace at all. Now, in the Palestinian uh, side, where things have never, frankly, been democratic, right? Israel, I, I wrote a piece that is in the newspaper today, where I argue that Israel has always been a pretty good democracy for Jews, less so for Arab citizens. But Palestinian, the, the Palestinian Authority, the PA, the PLO, Palestine has never been a democracy for anybody. Uh, and, and there, it, there was the PLO that said, we're going to make peace and we're going to get a state. Uh, and there were rejectionists. And the most powerful of those rejectionists uh, were, were, as we would say in Northern Ireland, the hard men of Hamas. But there was a smaller group. It was actually an earlier group called Islamic Jihad, <clears throat> which still exists. Now, those groups, uh, a little bit of a quick, a quick bit of history, um, in 2005, the, the Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who was a real right-winger who had helped build the settlements, but who changed, who, who reformed, uh, and who said, no, no, I understand now, there has to be a two-state solution, unilaterally withdrew 10,000 Israeli settlers and all kinds of soldiers from Gaza. And he didn't do it in a way that Israeli liberals, and, and I would have liked to have seen him do it, which was bilaterally, he just unilaterally withdrew. But still, he got the Israelis the hell out of Gaza, and, and, and the PA, the, the PLO, took over in Gaza. But Hamas is strong in Gaza. And the PLO is a secular uh, uh, organization that looks a lot like the liberation organizations of the 60s and 70s around the world. But that's not Hamas. Hamas is related to the Muslim Brotherhood, and it's an Islamic fundamentalist organization, an extremist one. Um, and so is Islamic Jihad. But, as, but, but at that time, Hamas was a political party in the new Palestinian Authority. And there were elections in 2007, and Hamas won the Gaza elections. And the PLO refused to hand over control. The, the PLO was represented by a political party called Fatah. So you have two parties, right. Fatah and Hamas, right? Yep. Fatah wins the parliamentary elections in the West Bank, in, based in Ramallah, that's the headquarters. But they lose in Gaza. And rather than give the, let the Hamas uh, people take control, they, they don't give it up. There is a civil war between Hamas and Fatah in Gaza. Hamas wins, Fatah loses. And since that time, Hamas has run Gaza, right? It is both a political party and an Islamic movement and a social welfare group and a militant terrorist organization. It's all those things at once. And for all intents and purposes, Ed, since 2007, there haven't been three, there haven't been two entities, Palestine and Israel, there have been three. There's Israel, there's the West Bank, Right, which is divided into three areas. Um, yep. Some of you know, um, some of the, the the major Palestinian cities uh, yep. are are controlled by the Palestinian Authority, but Israel has overall security. Sixty percent of the West Bank is controlled solely by Israel. That's where the settlements are. Then there's Israel proper. Then there's Gaza, where it's where it's Hamas in control, and Gaza is penned in by Israel and Egypt and the sea. And Israel and Egypt decides who gets in and gets out. And Hamas has done a network of tunnels to smuggle weapons and other things into Gaza. So that's the crazy situation where you are. And that sort of is a long answer to your question about who the moderates and who the rejectionists are on both sides. That was very helpful. Now. Chapter two? Point two. Right, right, so I'll be, I'll, this one will be quicker, I promise. Point two is the month that exists between mid-April and mid-May. Why do I say that? Because that's a really, really uh, critical month on the Jerusalem calendar, and this year more than most years. Now, 
the Muslim calendar is a lunar calendar, like the like the Jewish calendar, but it, but it's different. And so Ramadan, the holiest month of the year for Muslims, where they fast during the day and break fast at night, uh, Ramadan came this year uh, between mid-April and mid-May. It coincided with three holidays on the Israeli Jewish calendar. The first of these is Israeli Memorial Day, mourning folks who died defending Israel or been killed in terrorist attacks. The second is Israeli Independence Day. These are these take place in May, and then and then later on in the month is a, the newest of these holidays called Jerusalem Day, in which some Israelis, but really not all, celebrate the conquest and Israeli annexation and unification of East Jerusalem. And Jerusalem Day is is always celebrated by a flag march where the government allows ultra nationalist militant. Uh, youth, settler youth, to parade through the Muslim quarter of the old city. They walk through the Damascus Gate, and they walk through the Muslim quarter at, to the the Western Wall Plaza in the Jewish yeah, yeah. quarter, and they intimidate people, and it's very scary for everyone. So, and so that's May when that is that was toward that that was sorry that was uh can't remember the exact it was last Monday, okay. so whatever last Monday was that was Jerusalem Day, right? Yeah. So you got Ramadan when tensions are and emotions are always right. high. You've yep. got the three Israeli holidays culminating in Jerusalem Day and the flag. Very helpful. Now, you remember the few blocks from the Damascus Gate Plaza is Sheikh Jarrah, where there are protests. Now, for reasons that I can't explain to you, because no one has really put forward a reasonable explanation other than it was a giant screw-up, the relatively new uh, Israeli police chief uh, put barriers, he blocked access to the plaza before the Damascus Gate. Now, the Damascus Gate is one of the most beautiful entrances to the old city, as you know. Right. It leads you into the Muslim Quarter. Exactly. Some of my favorite restaurants are right inside. And right. the plaza outside, the beautiful 16th century walls of the old city, is kind of town square for East Jerusalem, for Palestinians. Yeah. And yeah. on Iftar, on the evening breakfast, yes. meal, young people gather to break the fast in the plaza. And it's a place where there's markets and cultural events. And it's it really is... Central Square of Palestine, of East Jerusalem. Well, the Israeli police blocked it off at the beginning of Ramadan, and that increased tensions enormously. Uh, and then, because the president of Israel, who was actually a very decent good guy, as a ceremonial symbolic position, was going to give a speech uh, at the Western Wall Plaza uh, in early May, uh, uh, Israeli police went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque complex, and they cut the cords of the speakers after uh, that call people to prayer and then make announcements after the, wa the the Muslim authorities responsible for the site refused to not make announcements. And this uh. ratcheted tensions up even further. So now you got protests in Sheikh Jarrah, and now you have protesters who are coming to the Damascus Gate area to protest they're not being allowed into the plaza. Right, you with me there? So tensions are rising. I'm with you. So now we see how the internet era and social media um, we we learn it in our country all the time. Can pour a little thing can add fuel to the fire that's about to erupt, because a bunch of a couple of Palestinian seventeen-year-olds go on to Jerusalem's light rail, and they film each other as they walk up and they slap an old Orthodox Jewish man who's sitting minding his own business on the train. They slap him <sighs> in the face. They film it. They post it. They brag about it. It inspires some copycat acts of people uh, going and slapping and, and punching ultra-Orthodox Jews who are minding their own business, just sitting there, obviously identifiable because of their garb and their beards and their clothing. In response to this, an organization called Lahava, which is an ultra-right-wing organization that was founded as an anti-miscegenation organization. Now I'm speaking to you guys in the South. You, right. you understand how that resonates. This is an a right-wing Jewish organization dedicated to intimidating and protesting Jews and Arabs who get married together, right? They shame and out people. They protest at their houses. They scream. But over the years, it's evolved into something more than that. It's evolved into a thug organization of ultra-right-wing, brutal youth who terrorize Palestinians. And so they have a protest march at the—they want to go to the Damascus— uh, gate Plaza to protest what they call the the assault on Jewish dignity from the TikTok videos on the Jerusalem right, light rail. Okay, so we we have to stop and breathe here. All right, you've just described some really horrible 
horrible dehumanizing things that are bound to ignite. I mean, I just, I just want to stop here. I mean, You're right. The, this, we don't want to imagine human beings being at their worst. I mean, maybe the maybe the worst of all history was the Holocaust, where human beings were really at their worst. I mean, there are other things, but this isn't the same kind of vein of just blatant dehumanization. It just turns my stomach. And and here we are, tit for tat, right? Well, that's right. And Ed, you asked me to explain the last ten days, and I've now spent, you know, forty minutes talking about what led up to it. But you, but but things are about to ignite, because the small groups of people who represent that worldview, right? right. You know, there's that beautiful quote: uh, "Don't don't question whether a small group of people can change the world. It's the only thing that ever has." I love that quote. But the exactly. fact is, it works both ways. It works for it the does. good guys, but it works for the bad guys too. It and does. So, most Palestinians are not, uh, Hamas, you know, they're not uh, Hamas terrorists and they're not light rail slappers. And most Israelis are not Lahaba thugs or settler extremists. But, right. but small groups of people can hijack the agenda. We've seen it in our country, right? Yep. And, and, and now we see it in Israel-Palestine. Yeah. So this group, Lahaba, walks up beating and intimidating Arab passersby in East Jerusalem. The police sort of push them back. And now, we have a situation where civil society groups like the ones that I support and represent and other people in Israeli society are saying, look, you you can't let the Jerusalem Day flag march take place now. You've got thousands of Lahava people and, and, and militant settlers swarming into the city. The city is a tinderbox. The protests in Sheikh Jarrah are happening. The Israeli government then, Bibi Netanyahu, who has, I would argue, allowed this situation to um, to get to the place where it is, uh, right. both because it's his government that's passed, that's supported policies and upheld laws like the ones we've discussed, but also they've done nothing to damp down these uh, this this situation. They try to do uh, several things, and they were good things, but they were too little and they were too late. First, the Attorney General of the State of Israel says, asks the High Court of Justice, can you postpone? the hearing for Sheikh Jarrah for a month to let people cool down. And the Supreme Court says, yes, we will. So now that 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 day, which was last Monday, which was meant to be the High Court Justice of Justice Day, the end of Ramadan and the Jerusalem Day flag march all at once, right, with everything else that's happening in Jerusalem, that is taken off the table. Um, and at the very last minute, Netanyahu says, we're going to reroute the flag march so it goes through the Jaffa Gate which enters the old city, as you know, Ed, from the west side and goes right. into the place where the Christian, Jewish, and Armenian quarters, where there's far yep. less tension, um, uh, meet, and, and will go to the Western Wall from there. Well, the militant organizers of the flag march say, well, then we're canceling it. And you know what you've got? you got thousands of young militant youth kind of walking around Jerusalem at this point in time. So, so meanwhile... Uh, you have a bunch of Palestinian youth who are ready for the flag march and they're ready for confrontation, just like the Jewish kids are. In a way, you could say this latest uh, outbreak is the is because the people who are running the show over there are a bunch of angry teenage boys on both sides. And it's not right. even that much of an exaggeration. The Israeli authorities, the police seem like they're completely, they have no, they have no clue how to respond. And <clears throat> word is uh, is passed that the Palestinian youth have stockpiled a bunch of rocks up at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, inside the mosque. And they're gonna throw them at the ID, at the Israeli police and at the settler youth who are gonna rampage through the old city. So it's like the, the, the jets and the sharks here. They're getting ready to fight. But these are teenagers who are gonna throw rocks at each other and beat each other. Terrible, but, but, but hardly like the stuff of, uh, of World War III. And then the Israeli police does something that again is, is, is inexplicable to me. Um, one thing before I tell you what they did. I forgot to mention something. In There's a political context that we have to take a look at, and I'm gonna come to it in a minute, right? Bo on both sides, the Israeli and the Palestinian side. But on the Israeli side, the political context is important for us to establish here. There was an election uh, a few in March. It was the fourth election in two years in Israel. And after the election, for the fourth time in a row, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu was unable to form a coalition. Okay, he got the most votes, the biggest party, but there aren't enough groups that uh, parties that we, in Israel you got to win an election and get the right from the president to form a coalition, but then you got to form a governing coalition. And Bibi can't do it. This is the fourth time in a row he cannot do it. He does not have enough seats. You need 61 seats of the 120 uh, member parliament to form a coalition. But for the first time this time, a Frankenstein's monster of of, uh, of of opposition parties that come from the right, right-wing parties that are just disgusted with Bibi. They're super right-wing, but they don't like Bibi. And there's three of them and they're all different. Two large, two medium-sized centrist parties um, uh, and two left-wing Israeli Zionist parties uh, and an Arab party. There are two major Arab blocs in, 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 in Israel right now. Um, and and Bibi actually tried to get the, the the more right wing of the Arab parties to to help him, but but he had orchestrated the emergence of a political party before the March election made up of the most ultra right wing racist Israeli uh, politicians that have ever been in the Knesset, um, and they they got six seats. They got in with six seats, a small but significant mandate in the Knesset, and that ultra right wing group that he like Frankenstein himself, you know, had built to come in and help him build a government said, well, we'll never sit with Muslims. And so Bibi got hoisted on his own petard, even as he kind of opened the door to power sharing with Arab and Jewish Israelis, which is another story for another day. So meanwhile, he can't put a, he can't build a government. So the mandate goes to the second largest party leader, a set, one of the centrist party leaders, who begins to put together the contours of a government that will be a right center left Arab government uh, of, of national unity, of calm, that will just get Bibi out of office and try to restore. Israel has not passed a budget in two years. So, so you know, they're in big trouble. They just dealt with Corona like the rest of the world. So they say, yep. we'll put our ideology aside. We won't build new settlements, but we also won't have gay marriage. We'll just concentrate on keeping us safe and rebuilding the economy and, and, and getting us all back to normal here. A crazy coalition, but they're about to go to the prime minister uh, to, sorry, to the president to say, we have it. We've got 61 seats. And and so Bibi, Netanyahu, is terrified, not only that he's finally, after 12 years, going to be ousted, but because, Ed, he has been indicted on three serious felony criminal counts of corruption. And his trial is started, and he knows that if he's no longer the sitting prime minister, he could be convicted and sent to jail. So he is desperate to avoid this. And whether it's forming a government or going to a fifth election, anything is better than being removed from office. So he has every incentive to do what he can to keep that opposition group from coming together, okay? So that's the political context on the Israeli side. I'll come to the Palestinian side in a second. When, when the Israeli police raid the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they raid the mosque, right? They, they, hundreds of Palestinian kids are injured, a couple of police are injured, there's no firearms. They don't find a cache of weapons. There's some stones there. Okay, we're going to take a quick breath. In 1967, Moshe Dayan, some of you remember him, the guy with the eye patch, was the Minister of Defense of the State of Israel. Right. And he was watching as Israeli troops conquered the Jordanian Legion and took East Jerusalem. Yep. And he was across at the Mount of Olives, which is obviously very important in the Christian tradition, watching right. with binoculars. Um, the fighting in the old city. Remember what I said about the distances here. We're talking about, you know, yeah. like very close. Very close. I can't use a California image that Ed and I would understand. Yeah. Because you guys no, don't know. All right. So, so very, very close. I mean, we're talking yards and meters. We're not talking miles or kilometers. Right. So he's watching the 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 Israeli troops when they capture the Temple Mount, and he sees through the binoculars a soldier raise the Israeli flag over the Golden Dome of the Rock. And he gets on the phone and he says to the soldier's commander, are you crazy? Do you want to start World War III? Get that off the mosque, the dome. Because, because the Haram al-Sharif, the Al-Aqsa Dome of the Rock Complex, is the third holiest site in Islam after <laughs> Mecca and Medina, right? Yep. It's the holiest site in, in Judaism because of the Western Wall. <clears throat> so, so, so even Moshe Dayan knew it was folly to try to exert Israeli you know, uh, rule in such a visible way over that complex. But now in 2021, the Israeli police just raided the mosque to, to what? To confiscate some stones, right? So for a march that didn't even take place because it was rerouted. Okay, now Palestinian politics. 
we're, we're, we're almost there, folks. We're almost to chapter three. And chapter three, I don't have all that much to tell you about. What I really came here to do is tell you chapters one and two. Uh, there has been no Palestinian election for the Palestinian Authority in 15 years. Remember what I said, Hamas rules Gaza, Fatah rules the West Bank, officially the Palestinian Authority, which is run by a guy called Mahmoud Abbas, the president this of the Palestinian It's a mess, my brother. The Palestinian Authority um, has not had elections in 15 years because they're weak and pretty corrupt, uh, and they're afraid that Hamas is going to gain seats. And Hamas uh, is really worried because it's an autocratic, iron-fisted, Islamic, Taliban-like ruler of Gaza, supported by Iran. And they know that they're increasing, they're decreasingly popular in Gaza, where people are sick of their rule, right, and their misrule. So, so Mahmoud Abbas. And so they know their one chance is to try to gain some seats in the West Bank, try to show that they're popular there. Uh, and Mahmoud Abbas, fearing that very thing, cancels the election. So now Hamas is in a bind, right? How are they going to make a play for the hearts and minds of Palestinians to displace 80-something-year-old Mahmoud Abbas and show that they, not the Fatah PLO group, are the true guardians of Jerusalem, the true leaders of the Palestinians? When the Israeli police raid the Al-Aqsa Mosque after the month that I just described and the Sheikh Jarrah uh, protests, which, which were not just a real estate dispute, as the Israeli foreign ministry likes to say, that is a disingenuous, misleading, dishonest description. Or if it's true, then the entire Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a real estate dispute, right? It is a right. symbol for Palestinians of, of the injustices that, that they've suffered and a symbol for right-wing Israelis of what they're trying to do in Jerusalem and the West Bank. Into this mix comes frustrated Hamas, which sees its moment to seize the initiative away from Abbas and Fatah. And so they say, if Israel does not remove its troops, its police from the Al-Aqsa Mosque by 6 p.m., we will fire, we will attack, we will attack Israelis near Jerusalem. Now, is the, the Israeli military fought a, has fought a series of short, sharp wars with Hamas and in and around Gaza the most recent was 2014, and their estimates were they're not, they're bluffing, they're not serious. But come six o'clock, suddenly, and, and here I'll give you a personal story, I was on the phone with my dear friend and, and colleague, uh, who is now a board member of, I, of NIF, she used to be the director of NIF in Israel, so that's a funny irony. My number two is now officially my boss, because now she's on the board. Um, I was speaking with her, uh, her husband is the former Israeli ambassador to to South Africa during Rabin and Mandela. A great, they are great peace activists. And suddenly we hear sirens go off. But she lives in a town west of Jerusalem where nobody would attack. And she says, alone, her husband is calling me into the bomb shelter, but I'm not worried. We hear the sirens and suddenly we hear an explosion. And she turns and she runs. And Hamas had fired missiles at the Jewish communities, but also because they're indiscriminate, at the Arab communities to the west of Jerusalem. Um, the Iron Dome system that Israel has shot most of them down, but some of them fell near uh, near where my friend Rachel lives. So this is what happens 10 days ago. So that's the trigger of 10 days ago. Now, Hamas knows, right, that if they fire missiles anywhere in Israel, there's going to be an Israeli response. But if you fire them symbolically towards Jerusalem, and they can't fire them at Jerusalem because what would happen if a Hamas missile hit the Dome of the Rock, right? But they fire them at these communities west of Jerusalem. They know that Israel's going to hammer them. And, and in, in, a, in a way, it's the excuse that, 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 that aspects of Israeli military and society and, the, and Hamas and Palestinian society have been looking for. Because yep. Hamas wants to make its bid for primacy. They know they can do that by showing they're not afraid to fight the Israelis. Now, you'll hear Israeli diplomats say Hamas is a genocidal organization, and the reason they're doing this is to kill Jews. Now, they may well be a genocidal organization. I'm not going to get into that. But I will tell you this. They are a cynical, murderous, rational actor. They know they're not going to commit genocide with a few and it's not a few, with thousands of, of missiles. But these missiles are indiscriminate. They fall close to where they're aimed. Um, to date, tragically, 12 Israelis or people living in Israel have been killed by these missiles. Um, yeah. But but they fired over 4,000 missiles. They are not precision weapons. Israel has, yeah. thank God, the Iron Dome defense system, which they've developed and we fund. Right. Right. The U.S., not the new Israel fund. Right. right, um, right. right? Um, and, 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 and Israel responded with, with punishing airstrikes. And at this point, something close to 200 Palestinians have been killed over 10 days of fighting, uh, 60 of them children. Yep. Uh, Hamas, of course, does fire its weapons from civilian areas. 
uh, that's part of their that's part of their playbook. And Gaza is a very small place, and there aren't a lot of other places to fire from. But let's be clear: uh, as cynical as I sound, you know, Hamas wanted to show. In the last war, it fired nothing close to 4,000 missiles. It wanted to show that it's got technology from Iran that now can overwhelm Iron Dome, that can hit Israelis wherever they want. Um, and Israel now wants to degrade their capacity to do it. So they call it mowing the lawn in Hebrew. So that Hamas won't be able to do this for another four or five years. They know they will be able to do it in four or five years. But when they rebuild the tunnels and when Iran smuggles more weapons in, uh, when the illegal weapons factories get up and running, but there will be calm for another few years. And, and, and Hamas will, will have made its bid for primacy in Palestine. That is why this war is happening, right? <laughs> So, because of our time, unfortunately. Well, we just finished. We're done. We did, we, we're done. And we need to say that today, and we're filming this on Thursday, we have a ceasefire. Now, the question I have to pose to you is, you give your life, Daniel, to finding justice, peace, and building humanity in Israel-Palestine. What is your source of hope? Well, I'll tell you, Ed, and, and it's a great question because there's there's a there's a there is one other chapter which I'll just very briefly say. The most frightening thing about this latest round of violence that that began in Jerusalem sparked into a conflict that nobody other than Hamas and perhaps Benjamin Netanyahu want because politically right. now they're in much better positions. Believe me, that opposition change coalition is not going to succeed in putting a government together now, right? Um, so Bibi, pro Bibi profits from this. Bibi is the nickname of Benjamin Netanyahu. Hamas profits from this. Uh, the people on both sides suffer from it. But, but one of the most frightening things that happened as a result of that fighting was that for the first time in over 70 years, the specter of communal violence began stalking the mixed Arab Jewish cities and neighborhoods within Israel. Mobs of Arab youth and Jewish youth targeted Arabs and Jews. There were murders, beatings, uh, the burning of schools and restaurants and hotels as mob violence reigned. It's calmed down a bit. But for me, that's the biggest nightmare because, yeah. because Israel can't hold together yeah. if the 20% Arab, 80% Jewish communities fall apart. It will go the way of Belfast or India or Bosnia, right? Um, and, and Israel is not built to be able to withstand a crack within its civil society. But he, but here's where there's hope. Because, because my job, if you remember back to the beginning of our hour and 11 minutes, is to support those Israelis, Jewish and Arab, who are the firefighters, who are working to build bridges, who are working to, 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 to heal the rupture and the divide. And, and we exist for times like this. And so where do I get my hope? Because if you look at the news today and yesterday, you will see tens of thousands of Israelis, Jews and Arabs, who all over the country stood together with signs saying Jews and Arabs refuse to be enemies. Right? And and those uh, were organized by Omdim Bayachad, which means standing together in English, which is an NIF supported organization. And 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 Zazim, which means we are moving, which is the Israeli moveon.org, which was incubated and funded by the New Israel Fund, is organizing Israelis and Gazans who live near the border to say no to violence. And Tagma'ir, which is an which is an NIF funded organization, is going to the mixed cities and standing between the mobs of Arabs and Jews and saying no. It, it's an Arab Jewish organization. So my hope comes from the fact that there are far more Israelis who will refuse to be torn asunder by the extremists and hotheads on both sides. And and it's my the great honor and privilege of my life. You said I've devoted my life to this. The great honor and privilege of my life is that I get to be the support network, the engine of support for those Israelis who are right now, again, Palestinian and Jewish citizens alike, who are standing in the breach, in the gap, and saying, absolutely not. And that is the voice that we all have to support, I believe. And just because things are terrible doesn't mean you, get, you give up and walk away. Exactly. And those people have become even more solid in the last 10 days, you're saying. Well, not only have they become more solid in the last 10 days, but even as Israel took this dark right-wing ultra-nationalist turn in the last 12 years, and even as the Palestinian polity took a similar dark turn, right, of corruption on the part of the PA and increased militancy on the part of Hamas, uh, you got you, the civil society organizations, the people working for peace have become stronger. We don't have time today, but one day we'll talk about the incredible gains that have been made, including for the first time in Israeli history in 2013, a budget 
in which 22% of the budget went to the Arab sector of Israeli society, commensurate with the population of Arab Israelis. That is the result of the work of our organizations, of our operating arm, Shatil, of politicians, Arab and Jewish, who are enlightened and wise. So there are great changes that are happening. And, and, and over the last 10 days, what I would say is that the resolve of that majority of Jewish and Arab citizens of the state of Israel has also been strengthened. You know, they're terrified but they're not gonna let their country descend into this kind of chaotic, anarchic, Bosnia-like violence, not without a great fight, and that fight is gonna be a fight of, of peace and justice against violence and discrimination. So very helpful. Now, we have to stop. Um, you have just written an op-ed piece, and I want us, we will put the link for that. Up, great. And that is gonna be published in what that is now online in the forward, which is actually a, uh, a as you know, a, a, an online, news, well, it's a newspaper online and not, that is sort of the national Jewish newspaper in the United States. Very good. F-O-R-W-A-R-D, folks, if you want to Google that right now, so catch and, and forward. And you can go to NIF to find out a whole bunch of stuff about Israel-Palestine more of Daniel's writings, more of what NIF is doing. What I'm hearing, and I'm hoping I'm not being oversimplistic here, but I'm hearing that there really is a civil society that is being built that is getting have, having more and more resolve to say this stuff we're not going to put up with in the long run. Well, that is not too simplistic and it's absolutely right ed and you know if this had happened 20 years ago like this if it then we would be in far worse shape because we've but because we have these groups devoted to shared society and coexistence and justice uh th they have made enormous strides often below the radar screen sometimes not below the radar screen uh and and the situation is in such better shape than it would have been uh in their absence and they are uh absolutely devoted to make sure that uh, that Israel does not descend into that kind of nightmare, and I'll and I'll just say, if folks go to the the NIF website, nif.org, you can read about these organizations, and you can support them, and learn about them, and talk about them, and tell your friends about them. If you care about the Holy Land, the 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 the, the horribly yes. tortured Holy Land, if you yes. want to support the Jews and Arabs who have a vision of a of a, of a as you taught me yet of a new Jerusalem, right? right? These are the folks who are working for it, and and yes. go to the website and read about them. Uh, because you will be inspired. It will give you hope, too. Perfect. Daniel, thank you so much. You are such a magnificent teacher. Um, I and many others, will we will archive this conversation. It will air on Pentecost Sunday, which you know a lot about Pentecost because we just, had just took it over from, from <laughs> the Jews. <laughs> so um, we will be back in touch, okay, my brother? Absolutely, Ed. Thank you for, for, for having me with you all. Uh, I hope it's been helpful. I'm sorry it's so complicated, but as I like to say, it's not all that complicated. It's complex, but once you take the time to open the hood and see what's underneath, you kind of understand what's going on here. So hopefully we were able to do that. You've really, really helped me. Thank you, and you've helped us. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Bless you, bless you. Right back at you. Thanks, Thank Ed. You. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in.